Hello everybody and welcome back to another episode of The Hopeful Environmentalist. It's your host, Taylor, and today we're going to be talking about a fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty. We're going to be talking about what it is, what would be included in it, how we can start to become less dependent on fossil fuels, and how you can help our world move to a fossil fuel-free world. So let's get right into it and introduce our amazing, incredible, accomplished guest speaker. Speaking with us today is Zipporah Berman, who is currently the chair of the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty and the International Program Director at Stand.Earth. She's the former co-director of Greenpeace International Climate and Energy Program and the co-founder of Forest Ethics. She was listed as one of the 35 most influential women in British Columbia by BC Business Magazine, and in 2015, she was awarded the YWCA Woman of Distinction Award in British Columbia, and in 2013, she was awarded an honorary doctorate from the University of British Columbia. She's also the author of This Crazy Time, Living Our Environmental Challenge, and additionally, she gave a TED Talk regarding the need for a global treaty to phase out fossil fuels. This is just the beginning of some of the amazing things she's accomplished, but just so you can get, you know, an idea of how incredible our guest speaker is. So without further ado, I'd love to welcome and introduce Zipporah Berman. Thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and I just want to point out for everyone, I oftentimes uh, mispronounce proliferation. So if I mispronounce it in there, don't don't judge me too much. It's some one of those words I can never get. <laughs> you know, we can just call it fossil fuel treaty as well for short form. That's what we do. Okay. I don't know why, just one of those words. Um, so yeah, I was wondering if we could just talk about what are the goals of the fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty initiative? The first and foremost goal is that is to stop the expansion of oil, gas, and coal so that how much fossil fuels we're producing aligns with the goals of the Paris Agreement and keeping the world below 1.5 degrees. What is really astonishing is that for 30 years, we've been negotiating how much countries pollute and targets for reducing pollution, but we don't actually have agreements to constrain the production of oil, gas, and coal. And so we're producing way more than we could ever burn. So we're on track right today to produce 110% more oil, gas, and coal than can ever be burned uh, and stay below 1.5 degrees. And that's producing it by 2030. And we don't actually have international agreements on who gets to produce and how much. So the second goal is to ensure that instead of letting the markets decide whether or not this oil project or this fracking project goes forward or how much each country produces, that there should be international agreements so that that justice and equity are taken into account. And it's not just decided by the global marketplace. Uh, And the third goal is really to ensure, so first it's to phase it out, to ensure that that's fair, and then to ensure that it's fast. Because we know, if if you know anything about climate change or most countries, you can just look out your door and see how weird things are getting and how much people are having, how much we're seeing impacts of the fires and the floods and the changing climate already, we know we're racing against the clock. And the more we allow production to increase, the more we're locking in future pollution and future emissions. So we need to figure out how to make the transition faster. 
And part of that is ensuring international cooperation between countries to support, especially countries in the global south, to keep more fossil fuels in the ground and ensure that money and support is going towards real low carbon renewable solutions. Yeah, that's it's super important, you know, talking about making a transition that is equitable and just. And I think that was kind of a big thing that was within COP27 and looking at getting that the funding needed for the Global South and Global South countries. So do you mind talking a little bit more about how we can ensure that transition and for an equitable and just transition, what that looks like? Well, so the concept of equity comes really in, within the climate discourse comes from this question of, well, why are we in the circumstance we're in the, in the first place? The, the far majority of the pollution that's currently trapped in our atmosphere, smothering the earth like a blanket and in and, and creating extreme weather uh, and climate change comes from the wealthy countries. That much we know and, and, and not uh, from historically from countries in the global south. And so the wealthy countries in the global north should be doing more to to address that and should be supporting countries in the global south because they're actually the the countries that are seeing the worst impacts of climate change are the countries that didn't create it and and so that in part is what the whole conversation of cop 27 around loss and damage is about it's about how much money are the wealthy countries in the global north going to put forward to support uh, countries in the global south dealing with climate change now dealing with climate change in terms of loss and damage, adaptation, et cetera, is very different than how do we support these countries not making the problem worse? Because from the perspective of, say, Uganda or Nigeria, maybe they would say, and they have said to me in the negotiations, but it's our turn. You got to produce fossil fuels. You made all this money. You developed your economies. Now it's our turn to develop. But we already have more fossil fuels under construction on the planet than the planet can ever burn and remain safe. So if these countries start expanding fossil fuel production as well, either we're just in big trouble or it means countries in the global north have to stop quicker. It's, it's a basic budget question. So if we have a carbon budget, which we now know we have a global carbon budget, you can't just have countries producing as much as they want because then you it's not we're not we're not taking that global carbon budget into consideration so when we talk about equity as it relates to fossil fuel supply we're talking about the speed of the transition out of production and consumption so how quickly is it going to happen so it, are we going to manage decline um so for right now UK, Norway, US, Australia, Canada, all increasing production of fossil fuels. They need to decrease production. And if we want it to be equitable, they have to decrease production faster. So there's more of the carbon budget left for countries in the global south. But it doesn't mean that countries in the global south should be pursuing new expansion of new projects. And that's the bottom line of the science is that no new projects fit. And, and that means that we're going to have to have funds to support countries in the global south so that they don't need to pursue fossil fuel expansion to have a strong economy. And, and so that they can diversify their economy. They can pursue other opportunities. And in some circumstances, just so they can get out from under their debt. 
Because what our research is showing is there's a lot of countries planning new fossil fuel expansion, new oil, gas, and coal projects just to feed their debt. It's not to turn their lights on. It's not to provide energy to the people in those countries. It's actually to to just to provide cash to feed debt. And then the then the energy or the fossil fuels are exported out to the wealthy countries. And it's interesting. I, I really haven't done too much research or know too much about the carbon budget. And you described that perfectly. And I think it's it's crazy to me that, to think that countries like United States, where I am right now, we are continuing to ramp up production while other countries, you know, are trying to catch up and being able to create a just transition so that other countries aren't reliant on fossil fuels. I think that's, you said that beautifully. So thank you for that. Well, I was just going to say, you know, we talk, just transition, people talk about it all the time now. And and I think that's great. There's a recognition that we can't leave any worker or family behind as we transition to a new economy. That's awesome. But the fact is that, there are so many countries in the world that can't do a just transition within their own borders. And that's part of why we created the fossil fuel treaty initiative is to, is to push countries to cooperate with each other because we need a global just transition, not just a just transition. And, and I think we're the idea of a global just transition is at its infancy. What does it mean? What are the rules for how money is spent and, and how collaborative money is allocated we have some new just transition planning that's going on, for example, in South Africa with the JETP, the Just Energy Transition Plan, and other countries are contributing to it. That's great, but there's no transparency on it. There's no commitment that it'll be a transition completely off fossil fuels with no new expansion in the plans. There's no, like, we need some rules and commitments and, and regulations and frameworks around these ideas in order to make sure that they're truly just. Mm, yes, that's that's perfect. I, I also think, you know, when I think about the United States um, in specific and how we're starting to ramp up our renewable energy as well and looking at where we build on with renewable energy, you know, if we're building on traditionally, uh, well, all of it is indigenous land, but if we're continuing to exploit indigenous people and their lands and stuff like that, and I think that also should be included within when we look at, like you said, just transitions and what is a just transition that should be looked at as well. Absolutely. And so what, a lot of people say, ask me, you know, can I see the text of the fossil fuel treaty? We don't have a text. There is no draft yet. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that as we studied other treaties, uh, landmine, nuclear nonproliferation, chemical weapons bans, what we learned from the people who achieved those treaties is that you create a set of principles and ideas and working groups and a campaign public initiative to call for it and support it. And that pushes countries to start developing text and negotiating text. But if you just hand them the text of a proposed treaty, you'll never get it because the, the countries themselves need to have ownership in, in the creation of the treaty. That's one reason we don't have text. But the other reason is it's emergent. And, and what I mean by that is we're starting to pull together uh, scientists, uh, lawyers, international diplomats, indigenous leadership from every continent and have the conversations about what needs to be in a treaty in order to do things differently. So anyone who says they have all the answers right now in the climate era after 30 years of failure of international agreements and domestic policy to address climate change is not being truthful. We don't have all the answers. 
but we need new processes that have equity and justice at its core and that are committed to doing things differently. And, and so one of the things we did in the first two years of the fossil fuel treaty initiative is spent a lot of time building relationships with indigenous nations and indigenous associations and indigenous elders and trying to understand their perspectives on what do we mean by a new economy? And what do those concepts even mean relative to indigenous knowledge and indigenous wisdom? And, and, and what, what is the role for international agreements relative to indigenous rights? And, and so for COICA, for example, the Federation of Indigenous Nations in all of the Amazon that includes all nine Amazonian nations and uh, hundreds of indigenous nations are a partner in the fossil fuel treaty as well as indigenous environment network and indigenous climate action from Canada. So we're, we're just, we're just really starting the process of learning from them. And we're doing a project right now in every region of the world where we're consulting key partners who have endorsed the treaty on what they think the principles should be in the development of the text. And that that's so crucial in making sure that what we do going forward isn't still exploitive in, in nature. So making sure that everyone's exactly. at the table and everything is included in it and every perspective um, and impact is included because um, we don't want to continue going on the path that we're already going on and exploiting certain uh, regions and specific groups of people. So I think that's very important as well. Well, and, and if there's one thing that we've all learned, I think, both from lived experience, but also especially from newer voices and movements, indigenous rights and indigenous water protectors being at the, the forefront of fossil fuel fights over the last decade uh, from the youth movement and the rise of the youth movement, Black Lives Matter, even back over a decade to Occupy Wall Street. There is a, I think, much more sophisticated and clear understanding now that you can't separate climate policy and environmental policies from social justice policy, from equity and from rights, and that the the true solutions actually lie in the juncture between the two, because that's where you start to get a systems perspective that redefines power in every way that power is. We have to redefine how we create it and how we use it. In, in society. And I think that is pretty exciting. And I think uh, the bold, pretty audacious idea of an entirely new treaty to stop the expansion of fossil fuels is part of that process. Because fossil fuels have been the way for decades that, that colonial governments have exercised and controlled power, money, and the ability to, for people to, to run their lives. Yeah, that was so wonderfully said. It's very, the climate movement needs to be very intersectional. And I think we're starting to understand that. But, you know, like you said before, it's at its infancy and we need to make sure that that continues to grow and it's continue to be put at the top of everything we do in this movement and movements, all movements in general, to be honest. So kind of transitioning into COP27, what were some of the positives and negatives that came out of COP27 in relationship to your work and the fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty? Well, first of all, I would say that from a kind of, I don't know, media or pop culture perspective, COP27 was the first time that we had a conference of the parties on climate change that really wrestled with fossil fuels. At the core of the discussions, every meeting I was in, every media article, and you know, that's a fascinating thing to look at. I, I can, I'm slightly embarrassed to say that I have been involved now in 
cops for uh, 15 years at least. And, you know, 86% of the emissions trapped in our atmosphere today come from oil, gas, and coal. They come from fossil fuels. And the fact that we have allowed fossil fuels to be invisible within this process and not even commitments in the text of the international agreements to recognize that we need to get off fossil fuels or challenge fossil fuels is crazy. And it is a direct result of the power of the oil and gas and coal companies. And while we, I don't think we made huge gains at COP27 in addressing fossil fuels, we did out the conversation, which we've been trying to do now for years, but we really outed the conversation. So there was, you know, debates on the floor about whether to include the words phasing out oil, gas and coal. Um, we didn't strengthen the text in that regard, but I think that it laid the groundwork for people to understand. Like I had reporters coming to me saying, well, wait a minute, you mean we don't already do that? We don't already recognize, but you have to we're talking about net zero by 2050. Doesn't that mean no fossil fuels? Yes, it does. But the oil and gas and coal industry want us to think that we can have our cake and eat it too, that we can continue to be dependent on fossil fuels, that they can continue to produce them and make hordes of money. And somehow we're going to magically use new technologies to get rid of all the emissions like carbon capture and storage, which isn't really working. So they've been successful in including words in the text like unabated fossil fuels, which there is no proof that we can at scale abate fossil fuels and renewable energy is cheaper now. So we actually just need to move away from fossil fuels. And so we didn't achieve that. And we didn't achieve new language to constrain fossil fuel production or plans that show how countries are going to constrain fossil fuel production or emissions in the text. But we did achieve a recognition that either this process is not fit for purpose and therefore we need a fossil fuel treaty or it is it is broken and we need new mechanisms within it. And, and so that really kicked off the fossil fuel treaty from going from a proposal and an idea to, being, to be something that is being debated, discussed and endorsed by nation states. So the government of Tuvalu endorsed the fossil fuel treaty on the floor of COP27 uh, and joining Vanuatu, who had uh, endorsed the fossil fuel treaty at the UN General Assembly in September, and they became the first two countries. Obviously, these are small Pacific Island nations, but they punch way above their weight. I mean, it's because of Pacific Island nations that we have a 1.5 degree goal. It's because of Pacific Island nations that we have the, the loss and damage funds. It, we have been morally um, and physically led on a journey internationally on climate ambition because of the role of Pacific Island nations. And now they're taking on fossil fuel treaty. And in the behind the scenes at COP27, they started bilateral and multilateral meetings with other nation states from around the world about the fossil fuel treaty. That's a big win. And the other big win inside the negotiations at COP27 was a, finally a commitment uh, to move forward on support for uh, countries in the global South through loss and damage. So all of that seems like a good start, right? We wish this started, you know, maybe 20 years ago, but, you know, we're starting now. So as we move closer to COP28, what are going to be some of the big moments for your campaign and the movement at large to continue to build pressure? Well, um, in 2023, we're going to be hosting a number of convenings. Uh, are around the world, high-level international convenings that, that will also be hosted by governments to bring more countries on board. The Pacific Island nations are really committed to talking to other countries. So 
at all the international convenings, the Pacific Islands Forum in July with all, all 18 Pacific Island nations, United Nations General Assembly in September and COP28 will be hosting and the countries themselves will be hosting fossil fuel treaty forums. We're also doing, uh, we're, we're going to be building on some of the key endorsements that we got last year and working with those communities. So, for example, the World Health Organization has now endorsed the Fossil Fuel Treaty. And so we're going to be elevating the public health crisis caused by fossil fuels at the World Health Assembly. Um, in Latin America, we're going to be working um, with folks in the Colombian government and presenting at the at Brazil's summit to save the Amazon. And there's a proposal coming from uh, indigenous nations as well as cities in the Amazon for the Amazon to be the first fossil fuel non-proliferation region. So that's really a new and interesting piece. So those are some of the, the, the key things. And obviously the UN Secretary General's inaugural Climate Ambition Summit in New York in September as part of the UN General Assembly and Climate Week, that will be a key moment for the campaign and for our organizing and events. But what's really fascinating for me as one of the people who started the fossil fuel treaty, and it, you know, it was just really a, an idea a couple of years ago, is that now we're finding out about what's happening in the campaign, sometimes even after the fact, because the campaign is really active now in over 40 countries around the world. The fossil fuel treaty is an idea. It is, um, and and organizations all over the world are picking it up and campaigning for it in whatever way they have capacity. So I've talked to groups in Latin America that are starting to organize to get cities to pass motions calling on their federal governments to endorse and start to negotiate a fossil fuel treaty. I've talked to groups in South Korea who are doing public events or groups in countries in Africa who are organizing around getting faith leaders, more faith leaders to endorse the treaty. There's so much that people can do around the concept and people are just taking it all different places. I know having talked to a number of youth leaders that there's conversations that the global strikes and youth protests this year will have the fossil fuel treaty as one of the demands and looking at fossil fuel treaty as a, as a, as a focus there too. So I think, uh, you know, uh, there's just, there honestly stuff happening every single week and it's really exciting and it's really gaining speed. And kind of going off that, how can people listening to this podcast episode help further the movement of phasing out fossil fuels and how can they support your organization's initiative? Go to fossilfueltreaty.org, endorse the treaty, download some of the information. We have a campaign hub where we have draft motions to governments, to city governments. Go to your local city, organize a group of people to lobby your city government to pass a motion uh, on the on the treaty um, or organize in whatever way you see fit. There are groups in India who just organized last summer 100,000 doctors and nurses to endorse the fossil fuel treaty. The idea of the campaign is that the more people that endorse, the more diverse voices, cities, states, faith leaders, etc. That just continues this drumbeat of pressure that's building on federal governments, national governments to start negotiating a fossil fuel treaty. So really, um, we're uh, asking organizations and individuals to make it their own. We want a thousand flowers to bloom on this idea. And we certainly don't own it, but we'll support you. We have a small global staff that can help think it through, provide materials. Um, so really just join us. It's really exciting.
I love that. And I really encourage everybody who's listening to do that and to go to their website and endorse them and do anything you can to support them as well. Is there anything else you want to add before we wrap up the episode? It is also really critical in your regions, wherever you live, uh, to be aware of whether or not new fossil fuel infrastructure is being built. Are there new pipelines? Are there new coal plants or LNG facilities or fracking being proposed? Who's working on it? Join them because at this moment in history, delays are our friends. We can't afford to build the new stuff and move to where we want to be. We need our financial, our intellectual, and our political capital going to building the cleaner and safer solutions that we want. So if you're listening at home and you're worried uh, about climate change and you're wondering what to do, um, just start. Don't wait for someone else to do it, because I really think this is a moment in history where we need all hands on deck. I love that. I love that as a closer. I got chills when you said that. It's true. I feel like so many people, including myself, sometimes get paralyzed with what we're going to do next and what to what steps to take and what, what we can do. And I think you outlined an amazing amount of what we can do just from our computers right now, right? Just going on to the website and starting from there. So I really commend you for your work and I really look forward to supporting you and your organization and its ambitions. So thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. And that wraps up this episode of The Hopeful Environmentalist. I really hope that you learned about why the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty Initiative and the treaty in general are so important and why we need one. So please, I really encourage you to go check out their website. I will link it in the description of the episode and endorse them and do anything you can to support their mission. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of The Hopeful Environmentalist. And always remember to stay hopeful and create positive change.